0: Also read for us from James chapter 1 beginning in verse 12 Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him Let no one say when he is tempted I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father, speak now through your word to us, empower us and equip us for service and endurance in your kingdom that we might be faithful to the very end, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, that at the last day we might hear Him say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the joy of Your inheritance. Father, our hope is in Christ Your Son. Our trust is in Him. We seek to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would You help us this day by the working of Your Holy Spirit? This we pray. Amen. The evangelical Christian world has been rocked in recent weeks by cases of some very visible leaders who have fallen away from the faith. Uh, You may have heard about Joshua Harris. Uh, He wrote the famous book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Uh, wrote several other books that are uh, introductions to the Christian faith or that teach the Christian faith. Uh, He was a prominent evangelical pastor. Uh, in a rather sizable church for several years, came out of a, a, a rather prominent evangelical family, a homeschooled family, and he has now renounced the faith. Uh, he used social media to announce that he was divorcing his wife, and I suppose you could also say divorcing Jesus. Uh, one of the headlines that I saw taking a uh, sort of playing off of his book title, Uh, one of the headlines I saw said, Josh Harris kisses Jesus goodbye. Uh, And uh, that's sad, but true. Although I would say if there's a kiss involved, it's more like the kiss of Judas, uh, betraying Jesus than anything else. This is what uh, Joshua Harris said in his uh, announcement on social media. He said, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction the biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Uh, And then he actually went on from there to seek forgiveness, obviously not from God, but actually to seek forgiveness from the LGBTQ movement because he had stood against things like marriage equality uh, and did not affirm their place in the church. Uh, And so in a sense, he's Uh, repenting, you could say, of having lived a Christian life and served in Christian ministry for so long. Uh, And then just in the last week or so, Uh, Marty Sampson of Hillsong has rejected the Christian faith. And once again, it's gotten a great deal of public attention because Hillsong is so popular uh, in certain segments of the church. And Marty Sampson has been a leader uh, and a songwriter and a worship leader for Hillsong. So here you have Hill Harris and and Sampson. Uh, They've both been leaders in the church. Uh, They have written books and songs. They have led the saints in worship. They were, you could say, Christian celebrities and influencers. But what happened? When the temptation to abandon the faith arose, when their faith was pressured in various ways, they caved in. And sadly, this is not all that uncommon. I could point to you you to scores of other examples of this that have happened even in just the last few years. In fact, when I was cleaning out my library earlier this year, I decided I would throw away all the books with authors who had fallen into some kind of terrible sin and caused a scandal or who had fallen away from the Orthodox faith altogether. And I hate to say it, but it was a pretty sizable stack of books and I just tossed them in the trash because I thought that's where these books belong and that's what they've done with their faith. What James teaches us here in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, speaks not only to the temptation to renounce the Christian faith altogether, but to all the smaller temptations that lead to it. It's not as if Harris or Samson rolled out of bed one day and said, you know, today I think I will apostatize from the Christian faith. Today I think I'll renounce Christ. No, they gave in to many smaller temptations along the way that allowed that sin and that unbelief to grow that finally led to final disaster. It happened bit by bit. When the book of Hebrews talks about those who fall away, it speaks of those who drift, those who drift away. Not necessarily something that happens all at once, but something that happens little by little. James writes about temptation here because he doesn't want us to fall for it. He explains how temptation works so we can counter it and overcome it. James knows the Christian life is hard. He knows Christian leadership is hard. He wants to show us the way of perseverance, the way to counter and overcome temptation, the way to defeat temptation so we can be victorious in our faith to the end. Now, one interesting thing that you need to know here that is obscured in our English translations is that the word for temptation that you find in verses 13 and 14 is the same word that is translated as trial back in verse 2. And it's perfectly appropriate for the same Greek word to be translated more than one way because it really does have a range of meanings. It can point to different things. This is, you know, there are many cases where uh, the, the Greek language is more precise than our English. This is one case where we've actually got more precise words in English than they have in Greek. So that word that's used there can describe a trial that comes to us in the form of External circumstances that are very difficult to deal with, or it can mean some kind of temptation to do evil that comes from within. And so what you could say in these first 16 or so verses of James chapter 1, he is describing all different kinds of spiritual tests. James opens his letter by describing all different kinds of spiritual tests we face. Tests that come from the outside, tests that come from the inside. And I think there's actually a kind of parallelism here that James is developing. Go back to verse 2 and think through the sequence that runs all the way through verse 12. We read it this morning so you could hear it again. This is a summary of what James says in verses 2 through 12. There are various trials we face, and this testing of our faith gives us an opportunity to grow in faithfulness until we become mature, And that results, as verse 12 says, in receiving the crown of life. But then James presents us with another sequence in verses 13 to 15. We face various temptations, and these temptations present us with opportunities to sin. And sin can then grow to maturity, resulting in eternal death. And so verses 2 through 12, you have external trials leading to growth in the faith, leading to eternal life. And then in verses 13 to 15, you have internal temptations leading to growth in sin, in sin leading to eternal death. James, like Proverbs, James, like Jesus, sets before us two ways, two paths, and we have to choose which we will follow. Will your faith? Grow to maturity, or will your sin grow to maturity? It will be one or the other. And how you respond to trials and temptations will tell the story. How you respond to trials and temptations will tell the story of your life. We like to talk about Christian growth, how our faith grows, but James here speaks of sin growing as well. Sin grows on people over time. They get used to it. It becomes something they're more and more comfortable with and they go deeper and deeper into it. Sin grows on people. Sin grows in people like a kind of cancer. Sin that is conceived in the heart that starts like a small little baby sin is then birthed into sinful actions that if allowed to continue to grow, if not stopped, will mature until it finally takes over our lives and leads us to eternal ruin. James wants you to see that the fight against temptation is really the fight for your life. It's really the fight of your life. So what does James teach us about temptation? How do we respond to temptation? How do we avoid temptation? How do we defeat temptation? Well, first he describes the source of temptation, really by telling us what the source of temptation is is not. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now before we dig into what James is actually going to say here, let me clear away a question that sometimes come, comes up because people read this and they say, oh well, it says God can't tempt us and then in the Lord's Prayer we pray to God, lead us not into, into temptation. Why pray, lead us not into temptation, if God tempts no one? Well, understand what James is saying here. God cannot tempt us to evil because God is good. God is holy. It is always God's desire for us to do good, for us to do what is right, for us to act in in righteousness and holiness as well. So God never tries to lure us into evil. God isn't like that. Further, God can't be tempted by evil himself. Evil can never get any traction with God. God lacks nothing. Uh, There's no uh, hidden darkness anywhere in God's character or God's being. Evil can get no traction with God whatsoever. God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot sin. God cannot even be tempted by sin. But remember, that word that's translated in the the New Testament as temptation uh, has more than one meaning. It can also mean something like test, or trial so god cannot entice us to do wrong but in his providence he can put us in situations that test us like he did with israel in the wilderness as moses is preaching to israel at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and in deuteronomy 8 he says god led you into into the wilderness that he might test you and see what is in your hearts God put them in a place of testing. Or it's like what God the Father did with Jesus the Son. Matthew 4 tells us that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Satan did the tempting, whereas God used the same event as a way of testing Jesus. Satan tempted, God tested. And so you can look at that that temptation scene of Jesus and say, what Satan intended for evil, that is to lead Jesus into sin. God intended for good, that is giving Jesus an opportunity to mature in righteousness in his human nature. And of course that is what happened. So that line in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, is essentially asking God to guard us against Satan's temptations. To, to guard us against the snares of the evil one, but also to not put us in testing situations that would go beyond what we can bear. Now turn back to James 1.14. What does James say here? What does he go on? If God's not tempting us, how are we tempted? If God is not the source of temptation, where does temptation come from? God can't be tempted. We can be. Why is that? Well, certainly we could say temptation can come from the outside. It can come from Satan, as it did in the case of Adam and Eve. They didn't have any evil desires yet, but Satan was able to tempt them. Or as in the case of Jesus, Jesus did not have any evil desires, but he was certainly tempted by Satan. So it's not a sin, we need to get this clear, it's not a sin to be tempted from the outside. That's obvious because Jesus was tempted from the outside by Satan and did not sin. But James here describes something else. In our case, temptation can also come from within, from our own evil desires. And that very temptation that James is describing here carries the seeds of sin within it. And so verse 14, James says, "...each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own evil desires." Satan might appeal to your evil desires in tempting you from the outside, but I hate to break this to you. Since the fall, you don't need Satan's help getting into trouble. You can be your own worst enemy. You can, in a sense, tempt yourself. You've got plenty of challenges right there just in your own heart with your own evil desires. These evil desires burning within you that you've got to keep in check and even kill as you're able And if you don't keep them in check, if you don't mortify them, then they can actually lead to disaster. But it's interesting to look at where James puts the responsibility for this. This is so crucial. This is such an important message uh, for our culture to hear today when everyone's trying to evade responsibility for their actions and their desires. Look at what James says here. Each one... Each individual is tempted when he is drawn away by his own evil desires. What is James stressing? It couldn't be more clear. James is stressing personal responsibility. He is stressing individual responsibility. He's saying, you are responsible for your actions. You are responsible even for your desires. You've got to take responsibility for yourself. You have to take responsibility for your decisions And the consequences of those decisions, you have to take responsibility for where you are in life. You can't blame others. You can't blame anyone else or anything else for where you are in life. Oh, it's true. Sure, others may have failed you. Others may have sinned against you. Others may have put you in a really hard spot. But that is never an excuse for your own sin. Your circumstances may be difficult. You may be in a really hard place in life, but that is never an excuse for sin either. There is never an excuse for sinning. You can't blame the devil. You can't say the devil made me do it. He did not. The devil cannot make you do anything. He may tempt you from the outside, but it's your own desires within that make you vulnerable. That's why you give in. You chose to give in to evil desires rather than killing those desires. You can't blame Satan. And you certainly can't blame God. Any excuse we make for our sin really is a way of blaming God. And I think this goes all the way back to Adam in the garden. Remember in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned and God comes to question them, what does Adam say? He says to God, it was that woman that you gave me. Since you could say he's blaming the woman, but really he's blaming God. He's saying, God, it's your fault. You gave me a defective woman. That's why I sin. A lot of husbands since have been using that too. A really clear example of this in our own context, uh, in the culture today, and uh, even in the church, is same-sex attraction. Uh, People will excuse it saying, I was born this way, or God made me this way, or this is what is natural for me. No, James says these are evil desires. These sinful desires are your responsibility. You can't say it's just the way I am. You can't say it's in my blood or in my brain or in my biology or in my body to be this way. No, whatever's going on with your genetics or your body, I mean, that may give you certain weaknesses, certain vulnerabilities, but those things do not serve as excuses for sin. And to use them that way is to blame God. You can't do that. You have to take responsibility for your actions and even for your desires. But we can actually blame God in more subtle ways. We can say things like this. Well, I wouldn't have gotten angry and have yelled at the kids if I hadn't had such a hard day at work. Anything like that ever been said in your house? Basically, if you say that, what you're saying is, God, you put me in a situation that was more than I could ever be expected to handle. It's really your fault that I got impatient and angry with the kids. God, you ordained this day for me in such a way that you set me up for failure. And you're really pointing the finger at God. We do that in all kinds of ways. But James says, no, there is never an excuse for sin, there might be an explanation. We might be able to explain why something happened, but there's never an excuse for sin. Which is why when you do fall into temptation, when you do fail in this way, when you do find yourself in sin, you need to confess it and forsake it and kill it. It's the only way to really take responsibility for what you've done. But you know, we live in a culture where people do not want to take responsibility for anything. Instead, anytime something goes wrong, we have this tendency to see ourselves as victims, to paint ourselves as victims. Uh, David Bonson's actually written a very fine book on this, uh, at least in the realm of economics and politics, called The Crisis of Responsibility. It is a crisis in our culture. People will not take responsibility for themselves. Think of all the ways our society excuses sin and minimizes personal responsibility. Even the ways that we redefine things. You know, so we don't talk about drunkenness. That, that, that's what the Bible calls alcohol abuse. Drunkenness, that's clearly a sin. Instead, we'll redefine it as alcoholism and talk about it as a disease, like something somebody just stumbles into, not something they're responsible for. Or we blame the murder rate on the availability of guns instead of the evil in our hearts. Jesus says that murdering comes out of the, out of the human heart. That's ultimately the issue. We excuse certain behaviors based on poor parenting, or we blame social conditioning, we blame society as a whole. And while, again, there may be truth in all of those as explanations, they may help us understand what's going on in this behavior, they do not excuse it. Once you start to allow excuses for sin... Sin goes away altogether as a category because you know we're not so much rational creatures as we are rationalizing creatures, and we can justify absolutely anything. We can use almost any kind of reasoning to justify ourselves. Think about it: when siblings argue with one another, what do they do? They end up, you know, they're fighting with each other. They end up blaming each other. Spouses do the same thing. Husband and wife get in a fight. What do they do? They end up blaming each other. Well, I only did this because you did that. You provoked me. Well, the reality is nobody can make you sin. No one can make you sin. Even when they provoke you, it's still your choice how to respond. There's only one reason people sin. It's very, very simple. There's only one reason anybody ever sins. People sin because they want to. And that's it. That's the only reason anybody ever sins, because they want to. That's the truth. What does James say here? James says each person is accountable for his own actions, even his own desires. It is your life, it's your choices, your desires. It's all on you to do the right thing. You are responsible for the road you travel and the destination at which you arrive. Now by the grace of God, we'll travel the road of righteousness and we'll end up at the destination of eternal life by God's grace. But it's our choice, it's our responsibility. Now look again at what James says here. When James describes what our desires do to lead us into sin, he uses some interesting metaphors, metaphors that come from hunting and fishing. James says we are drawn away, literally it's the the kind of language you would use for an animal that's been trapped in a net that's now being dragged off to be slaughtered and eaten probably. He says we are enticed, the way you might use uh, a, a, a bait with uh, a hook in it, a, a fishing lure. says we're enticed or ensnared or lured. It's like we get all tangled up in our own evil desires and we become our own worst enemy and we end up causing our own downfall. It is certainly true that we all have certain weaknesses, certain vulnerabilities, and of course Satan knows how to exploit them. But it's important for us to know our own weaknesses, our own areas where we are especially prone to evil desire. James expects us to be able to spot these traps, to see the hook inside of the bait dangling in front of us, to see the trap and say, that's a trap, I'm not going to fall into it. Again, we are responsible. It is our fault if we get caught up in the trap of our own evil desires. Sometimes I think it's helpful to use your imagination and to uh, think about where, if you were to if you were to follow out this evil desire and uh, act on that evil desire, where would it take you? You know, the thing about sin is that it always looks fun. It always looks so exciting. Sinners always look like they're having such a good time. I mean, especially the way Hollywood presents them. But I mean, let's face it. Even in our own lives, if you know. You know, a lot of times the, the non-Christians you know, they look like they're really having a great time. They seem happy and fulfilled. And it, it just seems like a life of sin seems like the way to go. You've got to use a, a, engage in a kind of act of sanctified imagination. You've got to imagine where that sin will really lead you, its deadly consequences. What James says here, that sin gives birth to death. Imagine walking around pregnant, but it's death inside of you. That's what James is describing. Sin always leads to disaster. Whatever that sin is that's tempting you, think about its actual consequences. Its eternal consequences, but even its temporal consequences. Fornication. See, it's really tempting, seems really fun, but what does it lead to? It produces Teenage pregnancies or unwanted pregnancies and abortion, and then all kinds of baggage you might later carry into a married relationship. Unfaithfulness in marriage multiplies broken homes and children raised without a father. Hatred engenders all kinds of violence and death. Covetousness, issues in stealing, which leads to the breakdown of social trust and social cohesion. And on and on we could go. Whatever the sin is, it's got consequences. Temporal and eternal consequences. You need to think those consequences through. Use your imagination to think, if I were to act on this desire, where would it take me? Where does the story go if I follow this desire? But James goes even further in helping us with this. He, he really unpacks here the process of temptation, the stages of temptation, moving from its conception to, originating in our sinful desires all the way to the action, the consequences. He spells all this out in detail. Verse 15, he says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when fully grown brings forth death. See, there it is. James is giving you something like a genealogy of sin, a biography of sin. He's telling the story of sin. What is sin's story? It looks so good and so appealing on the front end, but then what happens? What's the consequence? When someone sins, how did they get there? James explains by taking us deep within ourselves to sin's origin in the depths of the human heart. Now in one sense, this isn't quite the way James describes it, but in one sense we can say you're already in sin even at the stage of desire. To desire something sinful is itself sinful. We know that from the Sermon on the Mount, the way Jesus addressed lust. We know it from the Tenth Commandment, how the law addresses covetousness. We know it from the Psalms. We know it from numerous other passages of Scripture. Genesis 6 talks about the evil inclinations from the heart, uh, showing us that sin arises from these evil desires from within. Scripture shows us again and again that our desires, even if not acted upon, can be sinful. There's such a thing as sinful desire. But it gets worse if you act on it. What James is looking at here is the progress of sin from its conception in the womb of our hearts to its birth in action. The progress of evil desire from infancy to its full growth in action. When it matures, when it grows up, what does it become? That sin that's so cute as a baby becomes this out-of-control monster when it's matured. James wants us to kill sin at conception. He wants us to abort it. that's That's one time we can talk about abortion positively. He wants you to abort sin, to kill it as soon as it's conceived in desire. He wants us to put our sinful desires to death before they can ever grow into actions that could lead us into total apostasy and eternal death. Again, as we've seen, When you resist temptation, when you say no to temptation, your faith grows to maturity. You grow in wisdom. James talked about that. You you grow in maturity. You grow in wisdom. You grow in righteousness. But when you give in to temptation, when you say yes to temptation, sin grows inside of you. And if you let that sin continue growing, it will take over your life and destroy you and drag you down into the pit of hell. If you say no, your resistance to sin gets stronger and stronger. It's like you're working out your muscles of righteousness. And you get stronger and stronger in your ability to say no to sin. You build up spiritual endurance. But if you say yes to sin, even one time, what happens? It gets easier to say yes the next time. And then even easier the time after that. The next thing you know, you're sliding down into the pit. C.S. Lewis had a great deal of wisdom to share about temptation. Listen to what he says. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. You will either fall through temptation or you will grow through temptation. It will either make you worse or better. You're going to grow one way or the other. Which direction are you going to grow in? The way you respond to temptation answers that. And it's so easy for us to deceive ourselves in these matters. So James in verse 16 says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. It is easy for us to deceive ourselves in matters of temptation and desire. And of course, if we deceive ourselves, then we're going to let Satan and sin deceive us as well. So James, and actually several more times in this first chapter and throughout the letter, he's going to warn us about being deceived. There's no excuse for self-deception. If you willfully blind yourself, it's your own fault you can't see. That's what James is saying. We've got to be honest with ourselves, honest about our desires, honest about our temptations, honest about our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, honest about what God says in His Word. So let me give you here a sort of concluding pastoral postscript. That's what James says about temptation. What are some strategies that we find in James and really in the rest of Scripture for countering temptation to sin? How do we deal with temptation? How do we just say no? You're going to be tempted every day of your life. Indeed, every moment of your life can be a moment of temptation. What do you do to resist? How do you endure and stay faithful? Well, sometimes it's as simple as a matter of fleeing temptation, fleeing a tempting situation. Paul says, flee youthful lusts. Some situations you just got to get out of. That's the best way to deal with the temptation. Elsewhere, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. That is, don't put yourself in situations where you're going to be weak. Guard yourself as much as possible. Don't be foolish. Along with this, we can say, be careful who your closest companions are. Since the people you are around inevitably influence you. And if you're around, what does Paul say? Bad company corrupts good character. It's going to have an influence on you. Don't feed your soul on things that desensitize and degrade you. So often, the pathway a serious sin starts with simply being desensitized to it. When you start to not be disgusted by it anymore, it's not so revolting to you anymore, it starts to seem not so bad, and the next thing you know, you've fallen headlong into it. Don't feed your soul on things that are going to desensitize you to the, the, the sinfulness of sin, the disgustingness of sin. Don't allow yourself to be degraded that way. Hollywood is on a mission to desensitize all of us to its preferred sins, and we have to resist. So instead, feed your soul on Scripture. Keep God's Word, especially God's promises, in your mind and heart at all times. Pray regularly. If you are in communion with God, you're far less likely to fall into communion with Satan. Uh, Remind yourself of sins in an eternal hell and often many consequences in this life as well that are also painful. Again, using that sanctified imagination to to consider what that baby sin is going to look like when it's all grown up. And most importantly, I would say, live in the hope of the gospel. Know that God is good and gracious, that God is for you. In fact, go back to verse 12. It's interesting. Verse 12 is kind of the hinge. I talked about the two parallel sequences that, that James gives us here. But verse 12 is kind of the hinge, and that's why we read it twice today. It can really go with either section. What does James tell us in verse 12? We need to remember God's reward promised to those who stand the test to those who endure, to those who resist temptation, to those who grow in the faith rather than in sin. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What is this promised reward? It is God's approval. It is this crown of life. Blessed is the man who faces the test of various trials and temptations, but who stands firm and perseveres in the faith to the end. Not perfectly. We're all going to stumble in all kinds of ways, and James will talk about that too. But the one who runs the race to the end, he will be crowned. True happiness, true joy comes from being given that crown of life at the last day. True happiness comes from having Jesus approve of you, hearing Jesus say to you at the last day, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter into the joy of your inheritance. If you will keep your eye on that prize, the glory and joy Christ has promised you, then you can persevere. Then you can say, no and you can resist any temptation, you can stand firm to the end. That's what Joshua Harris wouldn't do. He took his eyes off the crown of life, the prize at the end. That's what Marty Sampson failed to do. He decided that the crown of life just wasn't worth it. Remember, the Christians James is writing to are what he calls the diaspora. These are the earliest Jewish Christians scattered because of persecution, scattered because of Stephen's martyrdom, recorded for us in Acts chapter 8. Stephen is the first martyr, and so he really becomes a, a paradigm of all martyrs. And Stephen dies very much imitating Jesus, speaking God's truth, trusting in God to the very end, and speaking words of forgiveness and love towards those who are putting him to death. But this is what's interesting. These are people who scattered because Stephen, one of their brothers, one of their friends, got put to death. You know what the Greek word for crown is? It's Stephanos. The name Stephen means crown. When James says, remember the crown of life, he's saying, remember Stephen. This is why you're scattered, because of Stephen. It's It's a play on the name of the first martyr. James is saying to these early Christians, endure to the end, even if it's a bloody end like Stephen's. And then you will see the glory that Stephen saw and you will enter into the glory that Stephen entered into and you will be crowned, or Stephen, even as Stephen himself has been crowned. Stephen endured the ultimate trial, the ultimate temptation. And what did he do? He followed in the footsteps of Jesus and you can too. That's James' message to his original audience. That's James' message to us. Stephen, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. You can as well. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, may we never excuse our sin by blaming You or blaming others or blaming circumstances or blaming stuff. Father, help us to take responsibility for ourselves, for our actions, for our desires. And Lord, we pray that by Your grace, You would give us victory over temptation, that You would help us to put sinful desires to death before they can grow up to kill us, that we would kill them before they kill us. Help us to put sinful desires to death before they grow, that we might grow in righteousness instead. Forgive us through Christ when we fail and keep us faithful to the very end, that we might receive this promised crown of life that we might enter into your glory and your joy for all eternity. May we keep our eyes fixed on this prize. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.